0: Welcome back to Gradlings. Woo! Yeah. yeah. Woo! On a Monday. So today on a Monday. I don't know if this recording will go out on a Monday, but we are recording on a Monday. And I, my name is Justin. I am here with Bowden, and we're in Tuscaloosa. We are joined by the amazing, the fabulous, the unmatched Robbie, who is up there in... And Champagne. And of Champagne. I <laughs> forgot for a forgot. half second as we talk literally every single day. How
1: much, yeah, they appreciate you. In my Thank mind, you. we're still Thank just you. up we the appreciate road. You. We don't know
2: the city, but we
1: appreciate
0: you. I mean, I know the city. The city's pretty. I like it. Been there. Lots of cornfields. You know, it's beautiful. I like it. <laughs> and, but most importantly, we are most joined important. today for the purpose of meeting the most, one of the most highly sought after up and coming blossoming linguists mm-hmm. now. I there got go. budding so, scholars, a budding, scholar. <laughs> a budding scholar. We are joined today by Sal. Sal, introduce yourself.
3: Hi, everybody. So my name is uh, Sal Calisano, coming to you from Austin, Texas. Calisano. Yeah, Austin. I love oh, God, what's the weather? Okay, so right now I'm going to say a little chilly, but by what I mean, like 50.
1: okay. Oh, <laughs> so right it was chilly. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Tuscaloosa today.
0: I mean, it's like fifty-two. I mean, yeah.
1: so I walked here in eighteen-degree weather. Oh so. no, <laughs> that'll be me no. soon, though. So don't you worry. Yeah, it will be you soon. No. It will be you soon. Anyways. so but yeah.
0: So, Sal, we are so excited to learn about your research, and we're really learn uh, excited to learn about your experience as a graduate student. Mm-hmm. My experience with Sal is that Sal, you are the leader of. One of the biggest Spanish conferences, right? Like you helped well, put like, on one of the one of
1: the organizers, right? Yeah.
3: For you were talking about um, HLS, Hispanic Linguistics Symposium. Yes, I was there yes. in
0: October in Austin, yes. Texas. It was uh-huh. amazing,
3: right? Yes. Yeah, so it's funny. I um, was sort of a. I guess I wouldn't call myself a part of the organizing committee, but being here in Austin, we definitely helped a lot. Um, yeah. We were sort of part of the volunteer group. Interestingly enough, that way, that weekend was the same weekend as my college reunion. What? So uh, <laughs> I was there on Friday, and then I left. Oh.
0: <laughs> yes, you want to know how I know that, Sal? Yes. I went looking for you. And I was like, <laughs> Where is this famous Sal person?
1: <laughs> it was like that. Just shows you how long you was trying was to echoing Throughout the walls. Yeah. Right.
0: That's
3: true, because that was October. Yep. That yep. was. You were yeah. already like. And-
1: we have to talk to this guy he sounds so great he's cool um and he does a lot of stuff which we'll get into yeah. in just a second here moment.
0: yeah you guys stay tuned we'll be right back and we're gonna learn all about sal's research
1: and other things. Oh, things. and other
0: things. I guess. And well, other things. He's
1: more than his research. Robin wants the,
0: the last word on this thing. It's, it's,
1: well,
0: it's, <laughs> it's the thing. Anyway, we're gonna get into it. Okay, so. okay was that our
1: outro? Okay. <laughs> that was it. And Welcome back, and we're joined here today with uh, by Sal at UT Austin. So excited. I'm excited. I almost went there And then I didn't and now I'm kind of regretting it because I live in the north in the Midwest. It's cold anyway all right. So Sal is a PhD candidate in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and a graduate portfolio student in the Department of Mexican American and Latino 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 studies at the University of uh Texas in Austin. He specializes in sociolinguistics, language variation, perception and attitudes, bilingualism, and linguistic identity, with a particular focus on U.S. Latinx communities. In Miami, he has conducted research on language attitudes towards varieties of Spanish, implicit biases. Is it biases or biases? What is it?
2: Both. Both? Both? There what you kind of go, Sal. non no, Let's not be. There we it. go. Right. That was your test. Are you? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Implicit biases towards Spanish and English, and the relationship between the lexicon and perceived identities. So his dissertation triangulates the ethno-linguistic diffusion of Miami Cuban idioms through variation, rootedness, and perceptual mapping. In addition to all of those things, Sal is a gymnast. I am. and what? he has always loved sports, mostly soccer, but he started training in gymnastics while he was in Miami, and now he competes for the club team at u t austin nice. so wow. and that is yeah. reflective of something we're probably going to get into about his personal. Philosophy about balancing academics with non-academics, and in his case, the non-academic practice is maintaining mental and physical health through sports and exercise. And his goal, which I hope to see one day, personally, you know, at this conference, is to do a backfri- flip. backflip.
0: Backflip during a conference, <laughs> guys.
1: It's been a day, and now it's awesome. just going to get better because we're going to talk so
0: how will you know if you are ready to do the backflip during a conference?
3: See, I don't, I don't know. And I, this is a goal of mine because it actually comes from Kim Batowski at Illinois, Chicago. Okay. She was, we invited her to UT Austin for a guest lecture. And I was out with our team. We do our own, we self fundraise. So sometimes we basically just go on the street and do flips uh-huh. and people give us money for that. What? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. awesome. What is and, this world that I've never yeah, been exposed I know, to? I know. A- University club sports. <laughs> so, so she was walking by. She saw me do this and snapped a photo. It ended up on Facebook. And every I just recently saw her in McAllen at the, the conference I was at and she asked me at lunch, did you do a backflip <laughs> during your talk? So she challenged me and I don't I don't know an answer to your question when I know I'll be ready. I think it might be later in my career. But yeah, I don't I don't know. I think it might just happen one day.
0: It just may but happen. Just, oh my god, I mean, can I please be there? Absolutely. <laughs> we're both in Spanish, we're both yeah. in linguistics, we do I, I think that we yeah. can make this happen. I'll okay Let's hopefully I, next year. Yeah,
3: I will wait until you are there. Okay. Then... <laughs> Sal,
0: don't mess with me. Like I, won't. I will take this. this won't. Yeah, I'm Italian. We take these things very seriously. Oh trust me, Florida. I know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Anyways, okay. Well, well, will you just tell us just a little bit more from your perspective? Like, tell us about your research. You're right now.
3: You're working on your dissertation, right? Absolutely. Yes. So I just reached candidacy in January.
0: Congratulations! Um, thank awesome. you. Thank
3: you. Very exciting. So I'm in the process now of finalizing all of my data collection tools to then send out to Miami, uh, which is my field site to start data collection. So I basically run the pilot for one of the chapters. And so we're just getting the ball rolling. Plan is to finish next May, May 2020, hopefully. Very cool. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, we're dissertating now and getting the ball rolling. So yeah, my research, broadly speaking, focuses on language perception and attitudes. Mm-hmm. So looking at the way that non-linguists or what maybe Dennis field uh, would call the folk or folk linguistics, <laughs> folk, what they know and what they say about language and the speakers of those languages and dialects or varieties and so we've taken a bunch of different approaches to this in that from your traditional sociolinguistic perceptual dialectology research then we have pulled from social psychology looking at matched guys implicit association tests all these things to look at the different ways that people have feelings about language because let me tell you they do
0: yes <laughs>
2: that's
3: <laughs> the coolest
0: thing I mean, I I personally love this line of research because it's something that everybody, linguists, non-linguists, can relate to. Because everybody innately has a perception, has a belief, has an opinion. So, okay. So you ran a pilot, right?
3: I've run a pilot of the third sort of chapter of the dissertation where I create these these heat maps of Miami-Dade County. And it's a pretty simple process. Actually, the question is, uh, so in the dissertation, I'm actually focusing on... These idiomatic expressions that are of Cuban Spanish heritage, mm-hmm. or idiomatic expressions that have been associated with what we're calling an imagined community mm-hmm. of Cuba in Miami. Mm-hmm. And so, and these are idioms that you can find on YouTube, on Instagram accounts that are registered and sold around in Miami on cups and mugs, and, and stickers and pins and, and whatnot. And so, with the question that basically the map mapping task asks for for the participants is click on the neighborhood in Miami where you think speakers who use this word or phrase are most likely to live. Okay. And so the question that we're asking there is are these Cuban idioms being associated with the Cuban neighborhoods or not? And then does that depend on a number of extra linguistic factors such as whether the participant is a heritage speaker of Spanish, are they themselves Cuban, Cuban American, are they not? And that's gonna tie into the other chapters which are looking at our non-Cubans and to make it more operational, the dissertation is looking at Nicaraguans, Venezuelans and Colombians. So are, the, are members of those communities in Miami using and accepting these phrases that are supposedly Cuban, right? Okay. So basically it's a question of diffusion.
0: Very interesting.
3: Right, and then in t- the third part about this, of so to triangulate the data, is is the diffusion, mediated by what paul reed who's uh at university of alabama Mm -hmm. calls rootedness i've met him before he's really cool by the way he's amazing he's a friend of mine we've been going to conferences together for about five years now so cool Um, and he came up with this notion of rootedness which really comes from a cultural studies and so he he looked at how rooted are people to Appalachia or Appalachia? I don't know what vowel to use there. Which Whichever you people, want, South. They right? Exactly. They're we all, great. Them all. They're
0: the Souths. I'm telling you. Like he <laughs> sounds like he's got it all. Anyways, keep going.
3: And so what he found was that as people became less rooted to, to Appalachia, they became more defongal in their vowels right leaning going more towards the mainstream Mm -hmm. u.s american english Mm -hmm. Um, and so i'm applying that to miami so how rooted somebody is to this notion of cuban miami is that mediating their adoption of these idioms or not and then that's sort of one of the chapters and so i kind of i like the two first chapters because they're somewhat experimental, but not really because I'm not in Miami. Mm -hmm. Uh, So more survey data. And then the last part is basically to say, okay, here's what I've seen in these two survey data. Now, how can I visualize that on a map? Wow. And and the really fun maps because they're heat maps. And it's basically, it's it's, the fun part about it is that it's simple, right? If If the data shows up red, that means it's hot. That means a lot of people are looking at that neighborhood. And if it's blue, it's cold. People aren't really thinking about it. And the simplicity of it is actually what I love.
0: I love that you are bringing up simplicity because a lot of people think that when they write their dissertation, you know, you think, oh, if I'm not complicated, then nobody will take me seriously. Mm -hmm. And I I don't like that. Like, I love how you're I I know 100 percent what you're what you're doing, what your goals are, uh, what you hope to find and what you want to describe. In the, and you explained it to me for thirty seconds. That's mm-hmm. that's right. the part. That's the that's the ideal
3: research. So it oh, makes that sense. feels good. <laughs> <laughs> that feels good because you know I've had that thought about it being complicated, and that's the way that it's supposed to be. You know, even at this conference, that I was just that other maps were made in in ArcGIS, right? This new mm-hmm. thing that that if, if you're mapping data and you're from digital humanities, that's sort of the field that you should be going in. And actually, this morning, I asked a friend of mine if I was able to turn my maps into which are made in Qualtrics. That's it. Through, if I was able to turn them into an ArcGIS map, you know, because that's what everybody's using. It's kind of Great. like you know using R, R Studio, and how if at conferences, if your if your plot wasn't made in ggplot2, then it's not what we should be looking at. And I don't <laughs> exactly, I'm not exactly aligned with that. I mean, I can I can make a map quicker with yeah, the tools exactly. that I already have at this point in my PhD career because I'm not early on anymore. I don't really have the time to go learn ArcGIS right now. Right, And yes. so I think it, it's just, it's fun work. Uh, it seems to be working. So we're going to go with it.
2: There's, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there was a super, super popular book to buy, like maybe two Christmases ago, that came out of someone's dissertation that was, I think, I think the, the book is just called like, something like, you know, where do they, like, what do they say and where or something like that. And it was just mm-hmm. these, I'm probably getting that wrong, I'm sure, but it was just basically the entire book is just full of these idiomatic expressions and like, you know, preference for words like pop versus coke in this, in the United States. And it was just a simple heat Oh, yeah.
1: That's a great one. And
2: that came out of that work, came out of someone's dissertation. And it's like, so not only is this, you know, research that's, you know, interesting to the field of linguistics, but also this person had tremendous financial success. And it shows like how, how, open the public is to getting that information if you're not if you're not giving that information in a super complicated way everyone can read it right Mm -hmm. Right. everyone yeah exactly and that
3: really is something that isn't always but i think should be a stronger goal in our field Mm -hmm. you know making the work that we do accessible to non-academics you know because the reality is not many people read the papers we publish
0: no, uh-huh. that's the that's reason why we don't even press out. Words. I'm just saying.
3: <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're you're doing the work. You're doing the work that needs to be done.
0: Right.
3: And I think
0: uh, it, it's Robbie's exactly. doing most of the work. Both of them <laughs> editing. I just I'm here. So just
3: kidding. You're there. Exactly. Hey, you're <laughs> helping. you're helping. <laughs>
0: you Any, <laughs> anyways, no, you're um, actually doing most of the work because you're you're the one that's on the spot right now. But
1: anyways, okay. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I was actually really particularly excited for this interview, and it was mostly like, uh, how do I say, I I thought I was right, and then talking to you, I immediately knew. I actually saw your research presented at lsa in the dialect american dialect society a couple of oh, years ago okay and cool. like because your research sounded really familiar <laughs> and i remember like i remember thinking like this is a really cool linguist i want to be like him one day
2: so <laughs> now you're wow. here
1: um yeah i know sorry so cool. it's kind of like creepy but anyway no, it okay. was my um, <laughs> it was my first conference so i just remember it in particular
3: wow um, that's great thank you
1: yeah so Basically, I wanted to know, how did you come to, because I think what you did, you went to school in Miami.
3: I did. I went there after undergrad for my master's. So I did a terminal master's at Florida International University, FIU. Okay. Uh, in Miami. Mm -hmm. And it was just a two-year master's program in linguistics, general linguistics.
1: Okay. And then, and then, so now you're, you're doing the focus in by way of Spanish. So I guess I had two questions for you. Firstly, how this kind of, your project kind of, how did it spark your interest? Like, why is it really your, this is your thing, right? right? And secondly, I wanted to know, because I remember you were mentioning, you've been to a lot of conferences and I wanted to know if you had kind of been, you kind of experienced this as well. I'm going into a very long question. Okay. I just realized this. But <laughs> it's okay. I'm ready. um so you you did your masters in linguistics and now you're doing linguistics concentration within Spanish linguistics. Exactly. Yes. And so I've encountered linguists who are very particular and some of them don't, oh, Sal, he knows where I'm going. Um,
0: about me? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no,
1: definitely not about you. But so linguists, linguists um, like graduate students in particular, it's usually never faculty, but linguistics, graduate students, who do linguistics, and then they focus in a language rather than a student who's in a language department focusing in linguistics. And they love to distinguish themselves, at least like the way I've perceived them. Maybe I just met like the whole chunk of jerks but nonetheless, (laughs) it's been, it's been like a point of tension. And so I feel like you're on the other side, like you're ABD, you're, you've been through all this. I'm just starting out. And I wondered like if you had encountered this, maybe I'm just being.
3: In in certain ways. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've, I, now that I've started a PhD in the language department with a, a linguistics track, right? We like, so for example, our cohorts are generally at UT in the Spanish department are about 10 students, typically 50, 50 uh, in the linguistics track, and then there's two other tracks. One is sort of a Spanish-based literary, literary, literature and culture, and then one is Luso-Brazilian. And there really is not much connection there at all. So I don't have to take coursework in their track; they don't have to come over to my track. But within linguistics, absolutely. And these are just some, some very anecdotal experiences that I've had over the past years. But even with a conference like the LSA,
1: mm-hmm.
3: right? We've had years and again this is you know this is just a correlation not a causation As you know we've had years where a number of us from the language departments here at UT have submitted to a conference like the LSA mm-hmm. and faculty tenured faculty grad students have you know were mostly rejected from a conference like that mm-hmm. whereas we have a much higher uh, acceptance rate to conferences that are language specific
1: right mm-hmm. right right
3: um, and so that may be telling of a story like that. The other thing that I've experienced is the difference in, in approach, really, to the type of work from a general linguistics department to uh, a language department. So what you'll notice, at least at UT Austin, um, and this is a little bit the case in, in Miami as well, that the, what we can say, I don't know, the non-formalists, the, the sociolinguists, mm-hmm. are typically in the language departments. Mm-hmm. And then our linguistics department here is your run-of-the-mill phonology, phonetics, morphology, right. morphosyntax, syntax, semantics, and the language documentation is very popular here as well.
1: Right, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
3: And so, but at least for us in the language departments, the the coursework offered for the linguistics and language form isn't enough. So we actually have to go out of our department for coursework, right. um, which has been great actually to create more interdisciplinary work. But when we go over to the linguistics department which is great and we've had great experiences over there and certainly come out with a lot of tools and resources the socio angle is always a, a place of contention mm-hmm. but i come at that with a positive attitude maybe this is because i'm later down the road because it forced me and my colleagues to come up with a ways different ways to explain what we want to say right to come up with a different convincing argument and it was helpful to to, act, to practice that, you know, in the same way that we need right. to practice as academics talking about our work to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a totally different type of discourse. We also need to be able to talk to different fields or different subfields. I mean, that's a that's a practiced skill right. that takes a lot of being rejected before you get there.
1: Yeah, I have never thought of that.
3: Wow. Mm-hmm. And that's helped actually a lot now that I'm doing this this graduate portfolio in, mm-hmm. in the Mexican-American-Latino-Latina Studies Department. That's actually where I, I teach in that department now. I'm in my office in that department now. Okay. And that has been probably the most beneficial experience of this PhD so far.
1: Really? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Ooh. has been looking at the ways that we can focus on, you know, because when we talk about focusing on being a linguist who focuses on a language, that's where... I I have a personal and professional problem and it's because, Mm. you know, coming from a Spanish department, I'm expected to do work on Spanish, but my my work as a linguist is actually very little about the language. It's about the people. It's about their communities, their experiences and the effects that attitudes towards those experiences. One of those experiences being the way they speak Mm -hmm. has in the real world. So I reject the notion that i because i'm in a spanish department i have to work on spanish and only yeah. spanish right mm-hmm. my speakers my the my participants the people that i work with in my research d- do not live their lives only in spanish so to me my work doesn't serve them if i focus only on one side of their life i i, I include examples of english i have my entire pilot study that i was mentioning earlier focuses a lot on the english lexicons and english idioms that are used because their lives are mixed between both languages given the context of miami and so I think it's beneficial for us to to at least this is just my approach towards language to focus on the people themselves mm-hmm. to make you know like to understand the language as a social phenomena right
0: you know a lot of linguists will try and like pull you out of that right mm-hmm. they'll try and they'll try and pull you out of the the person part and try Absolutely. and make it to where it's all about the language, but in actuality you can't have language without people and you can't have but that transition between those between those two identities as a researcher can be a little bit shocking for some people. No? Absolutely.
3: And that's all this is not to say that the, the formal work is, needs to be thrown away. Of course, no, we need that. We absolutely need that for the theories and to understand what this, this, the tools that the speakers are, are using. Right, We need all of that work. And I one hundred percent depend on my background in, in general linguistics, doing the phonetics, the phonology, the you know, all the, mm-hmm. the core work. The core work that in order to do the work I do now, I needed that.
0: Yeah, um,
3: I think it's just the way that I view my research now. It's, I find it more important to focus on you know what's going on in the day to day in their lives.
2: Very cool. Yeah. You're speaking about how, like, you're doing, when you're doing your research, so, like, mm-hmm. how exactly did you, like, how exactly did you come about? Did you get on this project? This yeah, project?
3: absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. I was actually thinking about my answer this morning um, <laughs> to this question as I was driving back from the airport. I had to drop a friend off. It's kind of interesting. So, I started learning Spanish is my L2. I uh, started at about, I don't know, how old were you in the eighth grade? 13? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <for doing> it. <laughs> that, sounds like that is not
1: our Do thing.
3: <laughs> no, mine either, no. <laughs> so, so up out there. And it was just, it was that one topic in middle school, high school that I just loved. It came fairly easy to me. And I, was, granted, before I got into linguistics, I was pre-med, tried that, yep. <laughs> didn't work. And, but all the same time while maintaining a Spanish major in, in college. So there was a couple experiences that led to sort of where I am at now. One was studying abroad in undergrad. Mm-hmm. I spent my entire third year of college, my junior year abroad, first semester in Buenos Aires and my second semester in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget when I got to Madrid and I had been to Spain a couple of times before that. So I had a group of friends who lived in Madrid and I got off the plane. I went right to my friend's house and I, I had spent six months in Argentina. So I had developed that variety of Spanish right. or of Buenos Aires specifically. And I got there and he looked at me and I was speaking to him and he said, well, te vamos a quitar ese acento. <laughs> oh. and he said, we're, we're going to take away your accent. My and I was like, okay, interesting. Um, and this was before I had taken any linguistics courses.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So I said, okay, well, that's interesting. And guess what? They did hmm. They sort of implicitly over living there for five months. I sort of transferred over to, what you might call a Madrid accent. Now, who knows what I speak? It's a mixture of both. It depends on who I'm talking to. And so then in Spain, I had taken my first ever linguistics course, which was the two courses. One was phonetics and phonology. And Mm -hmm. the other one was sociolinguistics and dialectology. And they were amazing. I went back to New York. It was my senior year. I jumped into writing an honors thesis on uh, Buenos Aires Spanish, looking at phonetic variation over there. And then I ended up, at the time, I wasn't even considering graduate school, to be honest. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with a degree in, 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 in Spanish and linguistics. Mm-hmm. And then I was contacted by my former advisor, current colleague, and friend, Philip Carter. And he was like, hey, do you think you want to do a master's? And I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, know. <laughs> so three days later, in order to get a TA ship there, you had to take the GRE. Mm-hmm. So three days later, I just took it.
1: And that was not a good
3: experience (laughs) to have. But then I remember getting to Miami and that's when I was like, oh yes, this is it. This is where it is. Arriving in the airport, you know, Marc Anthony Viva la Vida was playing over the loudspeaker. And I was like, this is is where I need to be.
1: This is it, absolutely.
3: (laughs) And I remember a couple experiences just driving around. I was looking for an apartment with my dad. And we went to the grocery store and we were at the checkout counter. I was speaking in Spanish to the the cashier and there was a young kid, probably 16, 17, late high school working as the, uh, he was bagging the food and the cashier was speaking to me in Spanish and she turned to him and just ragged on him for the fact that this, this gringo was speaking better Spanish than him.
0: Oh, that's, that's rough.
3: And you know, he's a, he's a, he's your heritage speaker of Spanish in Miami, probably second, third generation. Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, I talked to him and we just kind of laughed it off and, and, and moved on. But that, that stuck with me. That stuck with me for a while because I said there's something, there's something here about the way, that people are very attuned to the way that people speak Spanish in Miami. Yeah. And so that kind of led to what we say in, in some of our papers, which is in Miami, it's really not a question of do you speak Spanish, but it's which Spanish do you speak? And even there's the whole within Spanish part that became very interesting to me. And then there's the Spanish and English divide.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. in
3: Miami that also plays a big role so I remember one time I was at Macy's doing some shopping I'm
1: actually uh... it's funny you I remember this story I tell people this story because I was like I met this person at a conference and he told me about his time he went to Macy's in Miami yes well
0: that's very LeBav of you
1: you right now
3: that's so funny to say so my my undergrad advisor was Gregory Guy who's very LeBavian and that, I never actually put that t- together until just now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, until just now? You are so welcome. You get one, Levov. Really? You get one. I, I get think Labov gets,
1: like, infinite yeah.
3: on this. Yeah, Levov gets <laughs> infinite, I guess. This, this is true. This you true. get one
0: plug, crazy. but we'll, we'll extend it.
3: This Macy's didn't have a fourth floor, though. I will say. But so <laughs> I wasn't even thinking that in Miami – You know, language choice is something that people do all the time. You know, they're in a situation, they're about to be in a situation, they have to say, okay, which language am I going to speak right now? And I wasn't thinking, and I asked, I had to ask for a size of a jacket. And I asked it in English. And very quickly, the the salesperson put their hand in my face, as if to tell me to stop talking. And so I did. And she looked at me and she said, no, 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 en español. And I was like, oh. Okay, I mean, fine. You know, I have the ability to switch. That's okay. But I found the abrupt sort of stopping <laughs> to be very interesting. Um, and I don't know if she spoke English or not. That I, I'm actually not sure of. But just the fact that she was said, "No, no, no. Here, we're doing this in Spanish. Like, this is not happening in English at all." And I was like, "This, this is so cool." And it was just, you know, talking to people in Miami, saying, "What's what's going on here?" Being my students all the time at FIU. If I use a a Hispanic-serving institution, I would say 90% of my students are heritage speakers of Spanish. They would have all of these stories, left and right, about talking to their grandparents at home, going around Miami, different experiences about language. And it was so often that they were being commented on, or sometimes ridiculed, for their Spanish. And their own internalization of these stigmas was very strong. And they're always hearing, oh, my Spanish, my Spanish is not good. My Spanish is street. My Spanish is vulgar. Mm-hmm. And so it just became so real for me. So I went to my advisor, Philip Carter, and I said, I, I want to I look at this you know, somewhat formally. And he said, let's do it. And ever since then, I've been working on, you know, that was at a broad level, right? We looked at Spanish, Spanish varieties, Spanish and English saying, what's, what's happening? How do people feel about these varieties? How do they assign jobs to them, et cetera, et cetera? And then I wanted to ask myself, which is kind of how I led to myself to my dissertation, was what about the varieties are people focusing on, right? Because we can talk all day about how they feel about the category Spanish, the category English, but is there something in particular looking at? Is it something that they're hearing, right? Is it a, is a, a, a morphological feature, a syntactic construction, what be? So I said, you know what? The perceptual dialectology research says that people love to focus on the lexicon, right? When you talk about another dialect, you focus on the lexicon, especially if you're not a trained linguist. You know, they say coke, we say pop. That mm-hmm. sort of deal. Right. And so I said, well, let's let's start there. And that's how I ended up working with with the lexicon and then moving into idioms. Actually, because one of my committee members focuses on uh, idiomatic expressions, language brokers, so kids who grow up translating for their parents and. In order to tie my research to other fields, I said, well, let's, you no, know, nobody has done a sociolinguistic project on idioms, mostly because they don't have really clear variants, right? They're, it's much more complicated than that. So I said, ah, let's try. Why not? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I like <laughs> so, the, the, bold, the
3: boldness there. Yeah. You gotta, <laughs> academia, you got to be bold sometimes. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, it was just a little bit of anecdotal experiences in Miami uh, and then looking at what's been done and the research and what hasn't been done.
2: Yeah. I had a um I had a question about this thing with um this thing with perception. It mm-hmm. made me it made me think about my own personal experience being being from the South and it's always really interesting because where I'm from, I guess just like I'm from like a very rural part of Alabama and uh-huh. I've lived in Tuscaloosa where the University of Alabama is for quite some time and I feel like when I go back home people always make comments about me not sounding like I'm from where I'm from right Mm -hmm. but then when I'm around someone who's outside of the southern United States they're like oh my god you sound so southern Mm -hmm. right and so there's all sudden so I was thinking about this perception thing and it being like it being twofold really like it's a perception of are you looking at are you are you looking at where like these neighborhoods in this in this heat map I thought it would also be interesting like to see where the like the people that are answering the survey like where where are they from right like is that are you are you also looking into
3: are you also um investigating that absolutely yeah that's um one of the the most important questions in the survey is what neighborhood did you grow up in right Mm. Um, and what neighborhood do you live in now and so absolutely that part of the analysis has not yet been looked at but it absolutely will be because that's going to play a big role so if somebody is from Right, so Miami has these two neighborhoods that are essentially Cuban-American. One is Little Havana, and then one is Hialeah. And, so, and South Miami also a little bit. And the distinction actually between those neighborhoods is social class. So Hialeah is 95% Hispanic-Latino community with an average household income of about $35,000. Which In Miami. Great. In Miami. In Miami-Dade. Right? And by the way, when I say Miami, I do mean the whole county. Right. Um, mm-hmm. because it's Miami-Dade County. Miami City is actually a very, very small place. Most people in Miami live in the county. But that, that contrasts with other neighborhoods like Key Biscayne, which have a high percentage of about 65% Hispanic, Latino, you know, high percentage of the, uh, language other than English in the home, which we can assume is Spanish. And, but an uh, annual household income of about $105,000 per year. Right? So the cool thing about Spanish in Miami is that it, it spans the socioeconomic strata. It's right? not just limited to the low socioeconomic um, neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so with that, you know, the question it would be very interesting to look at if somebody who's from Hialeah is perceiving the sort of the geolocation of these, of these words in the same way that somebody from South Miami or Little Havana is, right. or if they're, from, if they're not from a Cuban neighborhood. Right? So if they're from Sweetwater, which is a, a more Nicaraguan neighborhood, are those perceptions the same? You know, that's right. that's one of the questions we're asking. So yeah, we are looking at that. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I feel like that really that really fits along with your whole like you know um, like focus focus on the people, right? Like this mm-hmm. these these words, the lexicon isn't just something out there that exists that you can just examine, right? This is something that comes from like it comes from someone's identity. The words are produced from someone's identity, but they're also perceived through an identity as well. And Absolutely, so, yeah. right? One thing that one thing that your
0: research really shows me is that. Like, I think one of the biggest implications from this research, if they kind of, they do a line, like, if it's like, okay, I believe, I perceive this this word or this slang word to be used in this neighborhood versus that neighborhood, and then it turns out, oh, that's actually the truth. Like, you will find this word in this neighborhood versus that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Then it's very indicative of the fact that it's, like, how these communities are formed and how Mm -hmm. these neighborhoods are formed. Like, how is it that a Cuban can somehow arrived to be in the cuban neighborhood versus the nicaraguan neighborhood and now the nicaraguan neighborhoods have really only nicaraguans versus not having any cubans Uh, it's really i mean that's fascinating to me it's like how how do you know like how do you how do you know where to end up i mean it shows two major things that these communities are formed based off of like communication with within that's being like that Disperse somehow in some way, and then it also shows like these are really distinct cultures, and it's visible to see them and not saying that every single and you don't you don't see every Spanish is the same right like it's very clear to non non spanish speakers right uh, English monolinguals, for example, that may have this this predetermined this prejudice against Spanish speakers like they're different you no know? like right every just because they speak spanish doesn't necessarily mean they speak the same spanish
3: yeah exactly um, and that's one of the things that, I, that we try to do when we talk about this work is again to, to, to bring it out of linguistics exactly. right, which is looking at you know community formation in a place a, a super diverse global city like miami mm-hmm. right so one of the big questions that um that work more in sociology does is looks at like the the, the connections and disconnections between these, these Hispanic-Latino groups, right? So are they unifying as a, a larger Miami Latinx population or are they separating themselves? And so what we do is we say, well, how are they doing that with language, right? Because you can, they can do that culturally, restaurants, food, um, et cetera, in their neighborhoods. They can establish these, these material things to make these separations or connections, but how are they doing that with language? And then the the piece that, that for me makes it most interesting is, is not only the physical connection between Cuban Spanish speakers and, and Colombian Spanish speakers, for example, in Miami, because yes, they're in contact all the time. There's not these, these a hard lines between these neighborhoods, but it's the, it's, the, it's the public formation of this imagined idea of Cuba in Miami, right? So we have all these YouTube videos, and you know, those ones that were popular back in like 2011 about how all these different groups speak. Yeah, um, I remember that. Yeah, and um, I'm not sure. Can I say a bad word here? Can I do that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I,
2: I mean, maybe it depends. Like, like yeah, okay, but I, wait, hold on. Like, it's, it's super casual usually,
1: okay. But yeah,
3: cool. no. It's just the title of the video, which is like shit. my guys and girls say. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go ahead. So, in those videos, um, it's really funny because my students get so nervous swearing in class, and I say, "This is a language class. it Doesn't matter. do it." Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> in those videos, right, they are they're they're performing what they imagine to be Miami Cuban or Cuban Miami, mm-hmm. and that's the piece that we're looking at. So, are the Nicaraguans and the Venezuelans the non-Cuban groups? playing from that? Are they aligning with this bigger idea of what it means to be Cuban in Miami, right? Even if that's not necessarily what being in Cuba, being a Cuban in Miami means today, Mm -hmm. right? Especially because of the fact that the Cuban um, percentage of the Miami Hispanic Latinx population is decreasing. It's now at 49%. Mm -hmm. And every year it gets a little lower because of new immigration from other countries, most recently Mm -hmm. Venezuela. And that's what we're looking at. So we're looking at how are these phrases that you can buy on a pin or on a, on a, on a mug, um, which are sold in Little Havana. They're clearly linked to this notion of Cuba um, or Miami Cuba, right? Because Miami Cubans don't really, depending on their background, don't want to associate with Cuba. It, that depends on their way, status, and other factors. Um, you know, are the, the non-Cubans attuned to that? is that affecting them and is that affecting their linguistic production in some way and so the question that that you pose is actually really interesting about whether or not the perceptions like on these maps actually matches what people are producing on the ground Mm -hmm. and that's something that i'm not sure we can actually look at in miami because of how fluid and mobile those communities are Mm -hmm. right so um actually with the plenary at this past conference this past weekend looked at some similar work but in New Mexico. And they actually went through. So they did the perceptual dialectology piece and then they went back into the dialectology piece where they went to those neighborhoods and said, well, what where are these words being used? Where are these these features being being produced? And they did line up. Right? The lines that people drew in the maps actually worked for the the isoglosses. So
0: that's cool. Uh, like yeah. Yeah. Uh,
3: Damian Wilson and his team at University of New Mexico. And I am not positive, we could do it, it would take a long time, but I think, I'm not sure it would work in a a place like Miami, given the tourism, given the mobility of the speakers and their communities, constant travel back and forth to the home country, back to Miami, right? It makes it a little more complicated, but if it did, that would be pretty cool.
0: cool.
3: you're just looking
1: at so many different factors and i'm just like blown away on it like i'm just listening to you this is great
3: Um, yeah it's a little daunting but i mean
1: i'm gonna when we finish this episode i'm just gonna send this one to my advisor because this is what she does but like in french and she's gonna love it i already know so (laughs) um but we'll actually we're gonna go ahead and move into your life as a grad student so we're gonna take a quick break and okay. then we will go into lessons learned with Bowden and Sal.
2: Nice right. Thank you. Ready. Cool. <laughs> Welcome back guys. So we've heard a lot about Sal's research and it's been a really engaging conversation, but now we're going to turn to- But. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. Noted. It's Noted. Been really but. Um, no, it, has, it has been really engaging. It has been really interesting, but that, take, that leads us to the second segment of the show, which we call Lessons Learned. See, I would have used an ant and that's- <laughs> but-
1: this is what happens when linguists host a podcast i'm gonna be that oh my- second peer
0: re- i'm gonna
2: be that second reviewer you're gonna be your own podcast called reviewer too uh, no
0: my- <laughs> <laughs> oh, my- oh my god that is such
1: a
2: Good. That is a good idea, though, honestly. That is a really good <laughs> like, let's idea be honest, a podcast. That's a great Stop I'm <laughs> yes. like, just going to be like... Call it a reviewer, too, and just basically just, like, tear into it. Like, like, just have yeah. a research piece a week and just, like, <laughs> anything that you can. I would like, have to be anonymous in some
0: way, because can you imagine, like...
3: Right, no. but that can be a game. Anyway. They could guess what paper it is. <gasps> oh, yes. yeah, that's a good idea.
0: Guess the paper. Oh, no, but what if... Uh-oh.
2: I know. Anyways. It's not it's not good. It's not. Oh, no. So it's not, it's before before we before we make concrete plans to start another podcast, <laughs> um we're going to move on to our second portion called Lessons Learned. <laughs> um so yeah. so Sal, like so you're you're in the you're in the state you're in you know not the final final stage of your of your phd but you are you are far along and you've done you've done undergrad you've done master's you've studied abroad you have all this experience what's something that looking back in your in your, in your academic career so far that you wish that you could go back and tell yourself as a as a young uh what did you, did you say budding, budding, scholar. A budding a budding scholar, scholar. a budding
1: blooming,
2: <laughs> <laughs> budding
3: blooming. Yeah.
2: yeah if you could go back and tell yourself something or give yourself some advice to make the process a little bit easier what would uh uh, what would that
3: be? Okay, so I, I do have an answer to this question and it relates actually to one of your previous episodes where I have, a, I have kind of an opposite answer um, to this question. So I forget who it was. I actually have your website up right now. Um,
0: oh, well, I feel like so vulnerable. <laughs> 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 like, Last one,
3: episode, uh, Trisha. was Trisha. Oh, with Trisha. Okay. okay. I think her answer to this question was that she wanted to go back and maybe tell him, uh, her, her young pre-budding self, Um, (laughs) she wanted to, you know, tell herself that it was okay to not have something done uh, a week ahead of time. Or, you know, she gave herself a lot of criticism for, you know, waiting until the last minute. Now, I do the exact opposite. I work, I've always worked best under a lot of pressure. I'm a person who has to be busy. I make myself very busy, obviously, with my, my activities outside of gymnastics. I have a dog, right? Like, all these things that I need to be, that's when I feel like I work the best is with pressure. Mm-hmm. And I think I would like to tell myself to give yourself less pressure early on and say, you know, work with a bit of a different process, start something a little earlier avoid approaching the deadline as tightly as you normally do just to see what that would do for the work the process is different right and i think what that'll do or that would have done is given me more chances to take a break from the work go do something else and then return to it Mm -hmm. which i think is a really nice exercise in the type of work that we do Um, and i've over the past years never really taken my own advice and giving myself even that opportunity, right? Because it's all usually it ends up being an all or nothing sort of deal, mm-hmm. and it's happening right now because it's tomorrow. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh! you <laughs> here talking with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there's not. I mean, I teach tomorrow, but we—that's we're ready for that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, so I think that it's just a, a a bit of a flip on on the last answer. I think I would like to sort of figure out, or would have liked to figure out what it would have been like to. Have something done maybe a week ahead of time, or, mm-hmm. or that just would have been a bit of a different approach that's in terms of of work terms uh, of doing you know work for school uh-huh. and, and publications and such
0: yeah. i do, i I don't think I've ever done like when I was taking coursework when I was in my coursework i don't think that I finished a paper ever before the day that it was due
2: like oh, I always about to say. I was about to say you never finished paper. <laughs>
0: Well, you're never finished with the paper. That's the other thing. You right.
2: it, the yeah, thing it is. Is like, mm-hmm.
0: you're never that finished is true, with the paper. Yeah. Uh, if you think that you're finished, you know, if you at least do the first mm-hmm. finish, like a right. week ahead of time. And then you can keep on going back and you can look right. at it with like fresh eyes and like then you're not stressed out. Yeah and think about how that paper could have been so much better. Mm-hmm. I mean it's a yeah. it's a lofty goal. Right. But how do you how do people achieve that? Because it's something that people Grad students don't do that. I mean, in actuality, grad <laughs> students are writing their papers the night before. Right. I'm, looking at, I'm looking at, you know, no sleep, 24 hours, binging, uh, binging some articles. I want to mm-hmm. go like on an article binge again it's fun though i mean it's a fun experience to go through but
1: this is what you're gonna that's the attitude and mentality you have to look forward to after you finish your dissertation like he has i want to go article binging again
3: (laughs) again." yeah that would be fun yeah (laughs) i don't know how people get there that's it's interesting because you hit on something that i think is very important for any person going down this road to to think of which is everything that we do even the published work the dissertation, is still in progress. And I think that's something that sort of people frequently getting their master's early on in their careers, often they have this expectation that what they turn in needs to be 100% done. And that's, in my opinion, impossible. Mm -hmm. It's, It's not something that we can achieve. You know, the whole point about writing, publishing a paper is to have a conversation with a field. Right. And so something it's something I tell my students all the time is one of their their final projects for the class that I teach is to propose a research study. You know, I tell them I would never expect you to include every possible variable that that would need to be taken into consideration um, because that doesn't make for a realistic project. And that causes research to really never be done. That's the reason why we continue to do this work and why people still have this type of job. And, um, I think that's an expectation that early scholars often have is the work I do need to be 100% done once I finish it. Um, mm-hmm. and I think if we can change the picture to say everything that I do is two things. One, it's in progress and two, even single authored work is a, is a product of a collaboration.
0: Mm-hmm. Ooh, Ooh, um, I really like that. Oh my God. <laughs> Right? I
3: think
2: they
0: have hit my soul. Just the <laughs> <beginning>. <laughs> Okay, can you please just elaborate on that second one really quickly?
3: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I, 100% is one of my favorite topics. In some fields, there's this, this immense pressure. Well, A, there's the immense pressure in all the fields to publish, right? Especially now as graduate students trying to get a job, because as we know, it's no longer the case that you need to, get, you have, you need to have a dissertation to get a job. You need to have the dissertation to get the doctorate. To get the job, it's more work now. Right, yeah. it's conferences, it's presentations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the way that it's looking, at those requirements are going to get harder as the years go on. And there's this other, there's this, occasionally, you know, you have somewhat of a, of a stigma of a co-authored paper, right? And depending on where you fall on the author line, right, second versus first, third versus second, if it's not alphabetical, right, because the only people who know how that order came up are the authors themselves. And I think, you know, there's this odd favoring of single-authored work in some fields, right? Um, Linguistics is sort of one of them. Psycholinguistics, less so. These fields that have labs in them, right? right. And I don't, I don't know, I don't like it because even a single-authored paper has an acknowledgement section Mm. which lists all of these people that were involved somehow. And even if you just look at the review process, let's say by some measure, somebody did a project 100% by themselves under a rock. It has to get reviewed, (laughs) in order to be published, and then they comment and you mostly take their, accept their, their um, revisions in order for it to get published, mm-hmm. um, or you justify not doing so, and they played a role in that paper that you don't know who they are, but it doesn't matter. So I think the, it would be very cool if the notion could be changed to say that all research is, is a collaboration, right? Whether exactly. it's with, with co-author people, whether it's an advisor, like my old advisor, Philip Carter, everything that I write basically ever he reads, he <laughs> I reads. Like that. and it's it's a partnership right you know um we we help each other in our different paths like he's at a much different he's a tenured professor now but we're at different paths but we help each other when we can our my grad student friends here at UT Austin we read each other's work I don't know I just think it's interesting and I I think it's it's worthwhile to explore a little further to say, you know, may, maybe the push for always having single authored work is not necessarily the way to go. I mean, sure, fine. But at least recognize that, you know, the, this paper that came out in this journal by this one person is actually a result of so many people seeing that work, right? Even the audience really. at a, yeah, exactly. Even the audience at a conference. Yeah. Right. Right. To be a good That's scholar what? is really to be a good collaborator
0: exactly 100%. Right? I mean
3: think about all the PhDs who don't go down that academic route that's the tool that they pull on to get that industry job mm-hmm. is I can lead a team I can manage many projects at one time yeah. right and it's working with other people <laughs> and that that comes through in our work and it's just often not recognized
2: so I heard a rumor that we have a hashtag for this episode
3: mm. <laughs> yeah you do so, as as, <laughs> no, and,
2: and i'm curious and i'm curious and i'm curious to know what the hashtag would be i hear a rumor that I our, a rumor.
1: maybe he's been watching <laughs> umbrella academy i don't I'm know not gonna,
2: i'm not gonna hey. say who i heard it from
3: right so i do i kind of have two but i think i picked one okay. okay so and it comes from what robin was mentioning earlier about me being involved with gymnastics outside of outside of academia My hashtag, and I can explain it a little bit after, is hashtag work hard, play hard. Ooh. Yeah, i, like awesome.
2: it. I, I like really it. i really i really honestly i tell you what i was i was anticipating work work-life balance because of like oh, Jim, that's so funny I, I was i was i was expecting that but i was like oh it's a little bit like for did gymnastics just, that's a little on the nose but it's like just, low-hanging fruit maybe it needs to be something a little bit more okay
3: wait yeah that uh, was actually like, interesting because my first <laughs> idea was hashtag find your balance uh, oh yeah. Don't I just. Like,
0: <laughs> but why did you beat him to the punch? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways,
3: so work hard, uh, play hard. Right. But I chose that one uh, as of those two, but I like both. Is one, because it's a shout out to my former uh, group of rad students at Miami uh, at FIU. Uh, and That was our hashtag when we would go to conferences. Oh, cool. <laughs> we always made it a point to recognize that, hey, we were in a new city, like, let's go out to eat. Let's, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, uh, accepting the idea that you cannot go to every talk and that you probably shouldn't because yeah. you'll be tired and be way tired to even process. And so we would go out, we would go out to eat, we would have a drink, and we were working hard and we were playing hard. And we've actually taken that into our respective PhDs, PhD programs. And that's what I apply now to gymnastics in terms of balancing my academic work with my interests outside. Yeah. So hashtag work hard, play hard.
2: Uh, that about wraps us up. Thanks again, awesome. Sal. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. Our guest. And um, before we go, if you, like what, if you like what we do, please follow us on Facebook at Gradlings Podcast, Instagram at Gradling Podcast and Twitter at gradlings podcast and for, of course feel free to comment and message us about being in the show we're currently you know doing our fourth season and we are looking we are taking submissions should we say that now that we're like we're taking
1: submissions. <laughs> taking submissions. i don't know just so reach head. out and also yeah, i don't know out. and i don't know if sal's against this but like if you wanted to for all the linguists out there on twitter please follow sal he has a great twitter Thank i love you. his twitter it's just at Calasano, right?
3: Yep, exactly. Yeah. Just my last thing.
1: So great, <laughs> yeah. There's like, cause you, you go on Twitter and you have like a couple of your favorites, and you're just like, oh, this is great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I will
2: I will follow I will follow him as well. I've just I'm I'm kind of <laughs> new to Twitter, and I have like I have like 30 something tweets. You, you, there you you've go. been saying that a lot on the, the yeah, you YouTube
1: have.
2: That's because we've been talking about Twitter
3: a lot, and it's, <laughs> Twitter
2: is I mean, relevant. It, it relevant. is. linguistics. It, it is. is.
3: I tell my students all the time about ling, ling- Twitter, linguistics Twitter. They don't believe me that it's a real place
2: it's a huge
3: but
0: it's a very supportive environment not gonna it really is it is, it is. It, is. It, is. It, it
3: is it's It's helpful
2: yeah and so when you and so yeah so follow so follow, everyone, follow everyone on twitter and also thank you so much to dr doug lightfoot who's the chair of the modern language department here at the university of alabama and dr aaron o'rourke who's our faculty advisor and last but not least cbdb for our awesome new music for season three that's all from the gradlings thank you guys so much and oh.
1: Cheers, baby, we've got it made from here. It we're on our way. Let's fly